0: You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich what it's really describing is how god is the creative force behind the whole universe he's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life and so all these abilities they make god utterly unique which is the meaning of the word holy so, a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful as the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so, you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses in the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal. And then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time, it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. Good morning.
1: I think my earliest memories in life, I, two of my earliest memories in life, uh, was, uh, took place when I was in first grade. I, uh, my first grade teacher was Sister Anne Marie, but she wasn't just the teacher, she was also the principal of the school that went from I think kindergarten through eighth grade. And as principal, she was the chief disciplinarian, the only disciplinarian. And um, those disciplines took place behind us, you know, right, right behind us, no matter what time of day it was. And so it, it made for an interesting first year of school. And one time in particular, uh, Ted Pinsky, in the lobby of the church, right before mass, said a cuss word. And... It was a scary thing when it happened, everybody became, you know, still and quiet, but then the punishment came. Every day, for five days, we started the morning with Ted Pinsky in the back, getting his mouth washed off, out with soap. And if you're thinking some kind of flavored soap that you like to, uh, you know, wash yourself with, it was, it was that old school borax that came in those little dispensers that went like this, <clears throat> and they could, you know, mechanics would use it, right, to clean the grease off of their hands. And, And I think one of the hardest parts about it was, well, besides Ted's part, okay, (laughs) was we had to absolutely stay facing forward. And if we looked back, and, you know, Monday and Tuesday he was screaming, but Wednesday through Friday he was just crying bitterly. But if anyone would turn back and look at him, okay, there was plenty of borax soap to go around. You were next in line. First memories. The next one was, I was at at Jerry uh, Watkins' house, and he... And we were in the front yard and we were writing a paper on God, and I had written referring to God, he in a lowercase H. And I went, oh no, oh no. And it was on the you know, those big chief pads. And so I started erasing it and and then I burned a hole through the paper. and I tried to write over it, and I, it wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't afraid that the looks of this paper were gonna be against the standards of Sister Anne Marie, but she would know that the reason I was so marked up is because that on my initial attempt that I did not capitalize the H. And so when I turned it in, I was just waiting, you know, for my time in the back of the classroom. I didn't get in any trouble. But the, the point is, is that some of my first memories were brought to you by Sister Anne Marie, and it was, and it was, it was that God was different, that God was separate, that God was holy, and he was not to be played with. Or there were no games with his name. There were no games with his identity, with the way we spoke about him, his nature. And I was grateful for that. Honestly, I was grateful for what Sister Marie taught me about the fear of the holiness of God. When our children were very young, Mullen and I had extensive conversations about I wanted my children to experience something like that. And she would say, I would talk a lot. And then she would just say, no. <clears throat> and I, and uh, she said, there are other ways to teach children the whole, about the holiness of God. And so anyway, our kids were, ra- were their for elementary school experiences. First grade were uh, teachers that would like hug them. And, and I mean, look at my kids now. OK, they're happy. <laughs> and, and not one of them fears elementary school teachers. So, (laughs) whatever, Um, today's talk, today we're going to learn about that Yahweh is holy. And holiness means, the word literally means to be cut apart, to be separated from, to be divided. And to understand the word, you need to maybe, the antonym is, you would think that the opposite of holy would be sin or something vile, but it's not. The opposite of holy is common. Ordinary, regular. Holy is different and cut apart from that. Tozer has a a great definition of this. Let me read it to you. We know nothing about the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, unattainable. And we fear his power and we admire his wisdom, but his holiness we cannot even imagine. The holiness of God is the otherness of God. Above the aboveness of God. And every single encounter that a man will ever have with Yahweh in the Bible is described as something of terror or awe or fear. Because God is other. He is holy. Yahweh is different. It's like the video. Not because he's bad. But because he's so good, because of the purity of his holiness, as we approach him, we will be annihilated. So today when we talk about and we try to learn about uh, the holiness of God, we'll look at one story and see how, how it progresses as this saint learns about the holiness of God. The saint we're talking about here is Isaiah, great prophet of Israel, a righteous man. And he will take God up on his challenge, his dare. If you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with your whole heart, declares Yahweh. That's the dare that God has for us. And Isaiah does that. Now, the reason he was seeking the Lord with all of his heart is because in the context of things, Judah is on the first day of a life in shambles as a country. What's happened is the the King Uzziah has been ruling for decades and he has been greasing the wheels of their economy and things have been quite nice. Thank you. And he's also been fortifying the security of their walls and making sure everyone's safe. Everyone's safe and everyone's prosperous. And then King Uzziah dies. And as a prophet, Isaiah's job is to speak to God for the people and to speak to the people for God. And so he's going to go and seek Yahweh and seek him with all his heart, maybe so he could get some guidance from Yahweh, maybe so he could get a word to tell the people, a message. And he finds Yahweh. He actually meets with him. He has an experience in his presence, the holiness of Yahweh. That is not what Isaiah was expecting. He thought he would just have another good prayer time. Here's the story Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. And their king, that, I'm sorry, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each one of them had six wings, with two wings to cover the, his face, and two to cover his feet, and two so that he could fly. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Let's take a look at what this picture is. First, uh, in this reference to seraphim, those are angels whose assignment is to constantly be in the presence of Yahweh. Uh, seraphim, the, the, the word seraph means brilliance or burning, bright, b- bright and burning is what it means. Bright and burning. Seraph means. The, these are the seraphim, the ones that are bright and, and inflamed. But while they're bright and burning, it is in no comparison to the splendor of the holiness of Yahweh. And so they can't even endure it, even for their own namesake, can't endure to look upon him. And so they must shield their face because they can't look upon his purity or his splendor or his glory or his radiance. And so they hide their face. They shield their feet. It's an expression of their creatureliness. And while they're there, the reason they're having to do this is, as one writer put uh, Thomas Brooks, He said, holiness in angels and saints is but a quality. But holiness in Yahweh, it is the essence of Yahweh. It's not a thing about him. It is who God is. And so these seraphim are chanting back and forth, holy, holy, holy. Now, some of you know that it's a Hebrew, like a stylistic thing, that when you want to emphasize some point, you'll, you'll state that same twice, two times. He'll state it in a row, two times. And the point here is, is they're having to say it three times because the holiness of Yahweh cannot be contained by a seraphim in heaven with words. And so they're just stuttering and stammering and saying, holy, holy, holy. And the duration of this, it doesn't just happen in this passage. And you probably might have known of this passage and old, kind of an Old Testament view of God. Because if you go to the end of the Bible in the Newer Testament, the last book, Revelations chapter 4, it says that in that same throne room are the seraphim, right, burning and bright, and they're still chanting, Holy, Holy, Holy. And it says that as long as the lamb sits upon the throne, they will be in this condition of chanting back and forth. And then John adds, and he sits on the throne forever. So (laughs) the idea here is, is in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the new creation, Yahweh is holy. He's always holy for all times. It says the, the, the threshold of the foundations were rattling or shaking. Some translations say uh, the, the door planks, the, the strongest element, structurally speaking, of some kind of building because it's holding up the great gates. That's shaking because the floor is shaking because heaven, heaven cannot contain the holiness of God. The brilliance and the glory of Yahweh is it's not even safe in heaven. Heaven can't contain it. It says, earth is overwhelmed, and this prophet, he is unmade in this event. Look what he says. He says, woe is me. He's, woe is me, for I am lost. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh Almighty. This great prophet Isaiah, he's lost his credentials in this, in this circumstance. No one's talking about him being the prophet of God, the advisor of great kings in this story anymore. Even the context of why Isaiah was seeking the Lord with all his heart in the first place. I mean, you, could almost, you could almost hear, uh, what, is, what is it that you want, Isaiah? Something about a king that died? Huh? <laughs> I I forgot, I'm unmade, I've become unraveled in this. Meeting with the holiness of God is never a casual event. And in this story, Isaiah shows as the prophet of God for the people of Judah, and now he has no reason to exist. He brings nothing to the equation. One peek, one peek at Yahweh and His holiness, and there's no justification for why He's even alive. And, and He's torn apart, and not at the seams. He's undone. And, and when you see Yahweh like this, when, if, you were to, if you were to take God up on His dare, if you seek Me, you'll find Me. If you seek Me with all your heart, You will find him, declares Yahweh, and you'll find him to be holy. And when you do, you cannot trifle with him any longer, and you won't argue with him, and you won't debate or complain with him. You cannot avoid him. You cannot lose him. You cannot question him. He has shown himself to be other, the otherness of God is what happens when you experience his holiness. And what happens in Isaiah's life is what happens with every saint that has an encounter with God in this way. You realize, sure, you can't live in the presence of the holy God and live, right? No one sees the face of God and lives, it says in the Bible. But what happens when you actually have an encounter with the holiness of of God is you can't live with a vision of who you are anymore. You can't can't see yourself the same way again. Look what he says here. He he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He (laughs) says, he he can't even, he's, he's listening to the chanting of these angels going back and forth, would love to enter in, but the resonance of his vocal cord would contaminate it. He can't even see himself as a spokesperson for God in the context of this throne room. George uh, Whitfield was uh, a famous preacher evangelist uh, in the 1700s. And when he looks at this passage and kind of overlaps it with a passage in Ezekiel I'll be referring to, he makes an interesting point here, uh, because he is a preacher, Whitfield. And he's, an, he's an evangelist. He's, he's a person that speaks for God. And when he read this passage, he said, a preacher is asking forgiveness and, rep- and, and repenting of his lips. That's That's the best thing he has going for him. (laughs) That's what he does. That's who he is, right? That's the strength of his spiritual life is is his speech. In other words, the most righteous body part on a prophet is his mouth. And Isaiah says, I am a man of unclean lips. And so George Woodfield says this. He says, if you want to truly experience peace with God you have to do much more than repent of your sins. If you want to have peace with God and enjoy the fullness of who God is in his holiness, you need to repent of your righteousness, of your self-righteousness, of the, th- of the only thing that you think you have coming into a relationship with God. Because in the full sight of the holiness of God, that self-righteousness is exposed for what it is. It's the last idol we ever hope to destroy. But when you have an encounter with the fullness of God like this, it needs to be dealt with. You have to repent. When you repent of your righteousness, here's what's great. Everybody wants to repent of their sin, sometimes because of the consequences of that. But when you repent of your righteousness, what happens is you realize you have no hope. What do you appeal to? All you have is to hope for absolute forgiveness, right? Com- complete grace, total forgiveness, and absolute pardon, right? Because you, you, you bring nothing to this. When you have a holy encounter with Yahweh as you were meant to, you have a revelation of the seriousness of your sin, but the stupidity of your righteousness, and how foolish it was to appeal to that. And that's why when Ezekiel has uh, an experience being in the presence of God, he says, My righteous deeds are like a filthy, bloody rag, buried in the desert, pulled out to be looked at and smelled and seen for what it is. That's my righteousness. Righteousness. So Isaiah here is in in his encounter with God. He repents of his his sin and he repents of his self-righteousness. The thing that made him right is the thing that's making him wrong. In the 1200s, uh, there's not a lot of debate on the wisest man alive was Thomas of Aquinas. If you're from a Catholic background, it's St. Thomas. And he set out to use his wisdom that had been given to him from God to write what was called what he called the Summa Theologica, right? the, the summary of theology. And here's why. He says, this is what his objective was: the ultimate to, to write the ultimate knowledge of God, to know that we do not know. And this is a 21-volume tome. And then as he's writing it, he's having a devotional break, and he goes into a chapel and he has an experience, he has a vision of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And then he goes back to his desk and writes this down. I can no longer write, for God has given me such glorious knowledge that all contained in my works is but straw. Where's the straw? Barely fit to absorb the holy wonders that fall in a stable. And then he put his pen down. And he didn't write again. The best he had is straw and a horse stable. Aquinas was the wisest man of his time. It was unchallenged. It was without rivalry. He would dictate to four different secretaries at one time. He died soon after he set that pen down. These were some of his last words. This is from G.K. Chesterton. He confessed his sins. And he received his God, and we may be sure of this, that the great philosopher had entirely forgotten philosophy. The wisest man, writing 21 volumes and more on the knowledge of God, has one brief encounter with God and repents of his wisdom. That's what happens. You repent of your sin. And you repent of your righteousness. And what do you have left? Nothing. And when you have nothing, you can receive everything. Your hands are empty. Your soul is finally cleansed. And you can receive the righteousness of God. When you repent of not just like who you are, but what you are. If you haven't been maimed by the holiness of God, then you can't be healed by the grace of Yahweh. They go together. If you haven't been injured or wounded by the holiness of God, then you can't have experienced the profound grace of God. It's a deeper, it's a deeper sense of a conversion. It's when we seek God, and we seek God with all our hearts, He will respond to that and it's his nature to be holy. He's not angry, it's just who he is and you'll find him holy. We have to do this. It's a little bit crazy. It's like a moth is pulled into the bright light that will destroy him, right? Right. Our Our souls with echoes of Eden are calling out to rejoin him in a garden walk in Eden But as we approach him, we become unraveled, unmade, undone, torn apart. But we have to go there. I'd like to show you what Yahweh does in this state of disrepair. Here's how Yahweh responds. Chapter 6, verse 6. And then, one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand having in his hand a burning coal that had been taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. The holiness of God exposes him to the wretchedness of his sin and his self-righteousness that leads to this transforming power of grace. Let me put it a way that we say it around here all the time. This is why we have this value. Only grace can transform. Only God's intervention can step into this because it's in our darkness. It's in this hopeless state. It's past reason that we find ourselves exposed, right? In the holiness of God, we can't live with God. We can't live with ourselves. And then from the altar, it says, Isaiah Isaiah knows what the altar is. That's the place where the atonement takes place. That's the place where blood is shed so the blood covers over the sin so the holiness of God can't see this. This is a sign of things to come when a different kind of lamb is killed. When Isaiah begins this story in verse 1, you see that he has a superficial view of repentance, repentance. Repenting of his sins, of course he would. And because of that, he has a superficial view or experience, rather, of grace. But not now. No. His prayer time turned into a real time when God showed up. The dog has caught the car. Can can you work it backwards now? Can you see the necessity for the violence that was taken upon the Christ. Can you see the need for the crucifixion of the only begotten Son, Jesus? Because it was necessary to cover, that's what atonement does, it was necessary to cover the sin and the self-righteousness so so as to shield the eyes of the holiness of God. It was... Holiness, it was, holy, it was this holy settlement where, where, where we could never pay this, where, where the, the Son was covered in our sin, and then we were covered in His holy blood. Our sins are atoned for. We were unholy, and we understand that maybe in a new way, and we were made holy, and that's transformative. The whole being made holy from the infectious holiness of redemption, it changes us. It, it, it causes us to be stripped of our sin, but also our self righteousness. And, and now we'll, we're, we're free, is what happens. We are free. Look at the next thing that happens, the Lord says this, he says, I heard a voice from the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Here's what the Lord is asking, and Isaiah knows this. I'm going to need someone, a prophet to come forward and give the rest of his life to come and speak to and preach at Judah, and no one's going to listen to you. No one's even going to care. You will be disrespected. You will be ridiculed. You'll be hunted like a dog. And Isaiah says, "Can I go? Can I pick me? Please let me go." And the reason is simple, as Oddwall's Chamber says: When you fear the Lord, you f- you can't fear anything else. What? What did what? Isaiah is so liberated at this point. What can he lose? Can he become a failure? He's already been a failure. He's already seen the depth of his failure in the eyes of the holiness of God, and now in a new way, his own self-righteousness has been exposed, and he was loathsome towards that, and now he's free. And he can go anywhere to do anything with anyone at any time that the Lord might ask there's no playing games with confessions with him anymore because there's no more shame. It's been burned away. I, I had a conversation with someone not long ago and he said that he, that he had fallen into and been caught doing the thing that all people do. And I said, doing the thing all people do, like hate your cat. Everybody hates their cat. He <laughs> goes, no, the thing all men do. Oh, oh, breaking the speed limit, and he said, what? I said, what? Why can't you put a word to this? Later on, we're having to meet with his wife because it became such an issue, and she said, well, he was doing that thing all men do. And I thought, how fast does this guy drive? (laughs) He had programmed his wife not to say the sin. Why? Think about it. Why? Because of the shame of it. Why is there shame? Because there's still self-righteousness. If all of that would have been burned away with an experience with the holy presence of God, he would say it out loud so that you would know what he's been through and what God has done for him. There's no playing games with confession You're free. You're free. The holiness of God, the grace of atonement, it gives you peace. It gives you freedom. It gives you joy because you were unmade and then recreated. That's the power of God's holiness. If you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with all of your heart, and if you do, you'll find me holy says Yahweh. And that's when the terror begins and the awe and the fear. But it doesn't end there. It ends with peace and joy and freedom. In our series, we're we're trying to study the attributes of God. If you think about this attribute, If you meditate on this holiness of God, meditate, uh, worry in a positive way, it will change the way you think. It'll change the way you behave. It'll change who you befriend. It'll change what you do in your life. There is nothing more powerful to have intrinsic change in a human soul than encounter with the holiness of Yahweh. So, no four points of application this week. Here's the application. It's a dare, and I'm not going to dare you. I'll leave that to the Lord. This is the assignment. Seek the Lord. And if you seek him with all of your heart, you'll find him. And you'll find him to be holy. And that will terrorize you. Stay there. Stay there until you can't even enjoy your own righteousness. Let that burn. And then enjoy that atoning tongue that touches your soul and covers you with the holy blood of Christ in a whole new way. And watch your life change from the inside out. Would you join me in prayer? I know there's some people in the room today that this idea of a complete dependence on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, to have a relationship with him, might be a new thing to you. You might have thought, maybe until this story of Isaiah, that you might have thought that being a good person, attending church occasionally, and sacrificing for other people gets you uh, points or an audience with God that you could survive. I hope today you realize that your only hope is in a gift, a gift of forgiveness and a gift of restoration, a gift of rebuilding by Yahweh God, that only grace can transform only through faith in the gift of the death and resurrection of Jesus, could you possibly be considered one of his children? If today is that day, just put your faith in that. Let today be the first day of your new life. For others of you, I'll pray that, that you have an encounter with the holiness of God. If you seek him with all your heart, you'll find him. You'll find him to be holy. I'll pray Peter's prayer for Grace Covenant Church, he prayed this 2,000 years ago. He said, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Be obedient, children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You were called to be holy. So be holy in all of your conduct. Just like it's written, you shall be holy As I am holy. And if you call upon him as a father who judges impartially, conduct yourselves with fear. Throughout the time of your very difficult situations, do not grow weary in being good. Knowing that you were ransomed, not by perishable things like silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The lamb that was without blemish or spot. It was through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ that your souls were purified. So be sincere in your love for your brothers, for your sisters, for those around you with a pure heart. Lord, I'd ask that we would be born again in a whole new way, rebuilt by your love after being annihilated by the beauty of your holiness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.